Could it possibly be, perversely enough, that Navalny is the best thing to happen to late Putinism? Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. So here we are. It's the afternoon of Saturday the 6th of February. Navalny is in prison, having been condemned to two years and eight months, as his suspended sentence is converted into a proper one, less time served. He also faces a a new, if rather less serious, but equally dodgy charge of having slandered a World War II veteran. Meanwhile, following the particularly tough uh, repression of the protests on the evening when Navalny was condemned, His people have called off further protests, for the moment anyway, until spring, saying instead that they're going to concentrate on the political struggle and on trying to get Navalny out of prison through foreign pressure. And I confess I'm not quite so sure if that's really likely to happen. Obviously one has to talk about Navalny. The other thing is, though, so much has already been said about Navalny, and the last thing I want to do is to waste your time just simply retreading things that have already been said by me, by others, ad infinitum. So instead, I was pondering this, and I think what I really would like to talk about is what we could think of as the Navalny effect. In other words, what is this actually going to mean for the system? And I want to basically flesh out two particular different directions, apologies for the mixing of metaphors, in which Russia could be going and explore what this actually might mean for the system as a whole. Now, the first one is the obvious one, and it's the one to which particularly Russian commentators, liberal Russian commentators, are turning to. The notion that we are now heading into an era of increased repression, the rise of the Siloviki, of the security apparatus, maybe even their dominance, their capture of the system, and in some of the more extreme cases, essentially a fascistic regime. Now, on the one hand, I think there is a lot to be said for the notion that this is a regime which has swung towards a more authoritarian, or shall I say, hard authoritarian model. Previously, it was a soft authoritarianism of narrative control and squeezing its opponents out of official media and such like. Now it's much more about, you know, poisoning people's underpants and clubbing them in the streets. But on the other hand, I mean, I think that we ought to accept that this is not, you might say, a natural fit. They obviously decided to try and kill Navalny, and that was indeed a break, as I said in previous podcasts, with previous practice, and in part it might be precisely because they thought he was a threat, it might be because they felt that he was some kind of foreign agent after all, believing their own propaganda. It doesn't necessarily mean, though, that they really want to be sitting on that throne of bayonets. The thing is, we have seen, obviously, some horrific scenes, as I mentioned, of violence on the streets, 
but it was controlled and it was calibrated. It was not the kind of full-scale war on the people that, quite frankly, we have seen in Belarus. And in many ways, my view is exactly that it was designed to try to avoid that. It was a short, sharp shock, as they saw it, to prevent the momentum of protests and to demonstrate their capacity to deliver whatever force was needed in the hope that they would not need it. And arguably, they won. Or at least they won on a tactical level this particular time, because indeed, that Team Navalny have actually stopped the protests. They realise that if they continue, not only are they putting people at risk, but more to the point, I think, they probably would find diminishing numbers of people willing to come out onto the streets. People don't like what's happened. People don't like seeing press and grandmothers and everyone in between clubbed and kicked by the cosmonauts of the riot police and such like. I'm not convinced, though, that it is so significant, so deep, that it will create a kind of lasting impetus in and of itself for protest. It's a, a reason why people are unhappy with the regime, but they have many others. And probably the fact that real wages fell by 3.5% last year is more important than on TV I saw some horrific sights. So I think we, we have to realise that this is still a process, a road around which, down which the Kremlin has gone a certain way, but frankly it goes relatively reluctantly. But let's say it actually chooses to go further. Let's say it does decide that really the only way it can protect itself, and let's be honest, the primary objective of this Kremlin is precisely to protect itself. But if they decide the only way they can protect themselves is precisely by becoming a proper authoritarianism, by blood on the streets, by demonstrating that, although at the moment it's amazing how many oppositionists you can find who are in Russia and yet can still talk to the international media, talk on webinars and such like, well, maybe they think, actually, we've got to bring an end to that. We're going to be kicking down more doors. We've got actually charging more people, putting more people in prison. I don't want to sound as if I'm encouraging this. All I'm wanting to say is that there is unfortunately scope for this regime to become a lot more authoritarian if it wants. But OK, what happens if it takes that route? Well, the sad truth of the matter is probably it will survive. The thing is, authoritarian regimes tend to survive, especially against the people power, so long as their elites remain united, and at present they are, so long as the security forces remain disciplined and not overwhelmed. And again, at present, the signs are that both of those are true. doesn't necessarily guarantee that it will be in perpetuity, but if, I had to say that if, if I was going to make a bet and they turned that way, I would say it would survive until either the economy dramatically slumped to the point of collapse, or more to the point, Putin goes. Presumably, in, those, in that situation, it would be goes to mortality. In either of those situations, things suddenly get very, very erratic and very, very dangerous. But again, we're talking presumably some way down the line. In the meantime, what would we get? We would get an economy that would be, if not necessarily stagnant, but certainly slowly decaying. There will be a continued brain drain. The economy, generally speaking, would become increasingly predatory and cronyistic. And we've already seen that's a serious problem. Entrepreneurs don't really want to entrepreneur precisely because they don't want to catch the eye of some particular vicious predator. 
it wouldn't, in my opinion, lead to a state that was controlled by the Siloviki. We wouldn't be getting some kind of military or securocrat dictatorship. Because I think the one thing that this system does understand quite well is how to keep the security apparatuses not just happy, but also divided, feuded, watching each other. But nonetheless, it would be a deeply unpleasant regime. Not fascism, it's just a common or garden dictatorship. So that's route one, and obviously I've taken it to its kind of relatively more extreme position. Let me now dwell a little bit longer on the rather more counterintuitive notion that this could be exactly the best thing that ever happened to late Putinism. Which, as I've said in the past, in my opinion, even before Covid suddenly sort of put everything into limbo, was struggling in finding some sense of direction, some sense of identity, some sense of a plan, some sense of a vision of a future Russia. Well, what may be the way in which it responds in a more positive way to the Navalny challenge? Well, first of all, yes, of course, there will be repression, but presumably it would be much more targeted and focused. It will be the sort of smarter repression that you know, is very much what we think of as the, the Andropovian model, after the former head of the KGB, particularly in, in, in the 1970s, who very much pioneered this notion of deterrence being better than repression. And early deterrence can be much more minimalist, the classic model being the so-called prophylactic chat, where as soon as you spot someone who looks as if they might be becoming a problem, you bring them in for a chat just simply to let them know that they are on your radar. And for many people, that is quite enough to warn them off and, and get them back on, on the straight and narrow. So, yes, there would continue to be repression. But at the same time, you know, one of the, the leitmotifs of the Putin era has been the sense that actually it's good to have people happy. Let's face it, the smart authoritarian wants you to be happy, wants you to be delighted to basically obey the rules and obey the orders of the boss. So what we might find is actually a renewed imperative, a new renewed impulse for reform. And already we're beginning to see this. And, and the reason for this is precisely that they want to avoid going into the, the, the full on repressive mode. And there are windows of opportunity. Firstly, there is a very short window of opportunity now, essentially through February. Because the opposition has decided not to be holding marches and protests, yes, of course, they're going to continue to try and um, organise, they continue to try and publicise what's going on and such like. But nonetheless, this provides a window in which, I think the authorities are already doing it, but you know, they will presumably be looking not so much to target the people at the centre, of the Navalny movement, but rather the network of local organisers. Because in some ways it's precisely this array of, of Navalny HQs in citizen regions across the country that makes it particularly dangerous at the moment. So a good time for you know some, some focused targeting of people who don't necessarily have the kind of profile and thus protection of the Yulia Navalnaya's and such like in, in Moscow. Then they, they obviously have the period with the run-up to the Duma elections, which, which are going to be tricky. But then once they get through that, really 2024 and the next presidential elections are, are, are the obvious next genuine challenge for the regime's legitimating and mobilisational capacity. 
So this gives it some time. And it's really quite interesting that, you know, at this moment, we have seen what looks like a, a, a new emphasis being placed on the national projects, which are these big plans for the sort of basically the reshaping of Russia's society and, and, and economy, both as a legacy building for Putin, but also genuinely to address needs of the country. And also Prime Minister Mishustin's sort of techno-technocracy models. And there's a, there's a very good um, summary in The Bell, which uh, Ben Aris in uh, Business New Europe in Telenews um, has summarised and developed, which is emphasising the extent to which we, we do seem to see a real impetus now coming from within the government and a, what looked like the preparations for a serious rollout of a whole new, I wouldn't say version of the national projects, but shall I say reinterpretation of them to also try and bring some kind of results sooner rather than later. And in this respect, this combination of repression and also truly fundamental bottom-up modernization of the country, to me, reminds me of the reforms that were brought about by a figure whom Putin has claimed to respect and even parallel himself to, and yet I have seen precious little evidence of that to date. And that is Pyotr Stalipin, prime minister after the 1904 revolutions in Russia, a man who, on the one hand, absolutely had no qualms about using very, very brutal repression. I mean, you know, after all, the hangman's noose is still known as Stalipin's necktie. And the railway wagons which took people to the gulags were called Stalipins. So there's a rather depressing uh, mark to leave in, in linguistic history. But at the same time, Stalipin absolutely was out to reshape Russia. And he appreciated the extent to which Russia's history up to that point had been of a whole series of abortive, half-hearted, half-completed reforms, which had never really been pushed through properly. Now, he said, give me 20 years of peace and you will not know Russia. He didn't have 20 years of peace, not, not just because of World War I, but also because he was assassinated. He stepped on too many, above all, aristocratic toes and, well, Tsar Nicholas II, he didn't necessarily connive at the assassination, but there's some evidence to suggest that he at least had some forewarning of it. He, too, was, was willing to see this, this troublesome reformer go. But that mix of targeted effective repression and a genuine desire to change the country, in Stalipin's case it was above all to force a new agrarian revolution on it by breaking up the old and inefficient communes, he called this his wager on the strong because he wanted to create a rural class of yeomen, yeoman farmers, exactly the people who were the bulwark of conservatism in Prussia and Germany. Well, he wanted to build that in Russia. Again, as I said, he didn't have his chance. So some systems choose Stalipin and some of them have Stalipin thrust upon them. And this might be, might be, could be, possibly be the Stalipin moment in, in late Putinism. Because this is the interesting thing. I, I've really been distinctly under-impressed by the Kremlin's capacity to dream big and, above all, to see what needs to be done to realise that dream and actually carry through with it. And this is true whether we're talking about building great power status abroad, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about foreign policy in the second part. Not everything is about Navalny, believe it or not but also about modernising what they presumably would love to become a, let's call it a Siberian tiger economy at home. In each case, there have sometimes been dreams, but no real 
commitment to actually following through with it. So what do I actually think will happen? Well, as ever, the answer is likely that it's going to be something in between. Something between the blunt neo-fascist repression and the conservative reform that you may preserve modernization sort of models. And, well, let's see, what would the components be? I mean, I think, as I said, I think smarter repression, but more repression. I think we will see, as far as possible, an attempt to carry out an Andropovian a little bit of deterrence goes a long way, but at the same time, absolutely a willingness to use fairly heavy-handed, large-scale repression when necessary, and the National Guard stands ready to do that. Secondly, I think we will see some attempts at what we might think of as also smarter development, that um, uh, there will be a renewed attempt to consider not just the whole question of the overdependence upon the hydrocarbon sector, but also what have been the institutional blocks on real reform of the economy. And I think what we see is, as part of that, addressing a whole variety of different social groups' immediate needs. You know, for poorer families, there's talk of a new universal allowance to provide them with, with better social benefits. For the entrepreneurs, court and law reform so that they can feel that their property rights, including intellectual property rights, are more effectively going to be protected, and also that they're less likely to be vulnerable to predation. Some very overdue infrastructural developments, courtesy of the, the national projects, which really, given how long these things take, I mean, it's, it's a tragedy that it wasn't addressed in the 2000s when there was money and there was the opportunity. But nonetheless, this is very much a way of unlocking a whole variety of other potentials there is within Russia. Because I, I really would want to stress this. I mean, in some ways, that uh, Siberian tiger phrase was a bit of a throwaway line. But, and this is something that I want to address in a, a future podcast, is I, I think we really have to be aware of the extent to which there are some massive economic potentials. And I'm not just talking about minerals in the ground that, that Russia has, that if properly addressed, and it's about infrastructure, it's about laws, it's about all kinds of other things, could be very, very significant. So there is the, the scope for doing this. Now, I honestly don't know if it saves the regime. Because the interesting thing is that often one of the most difficult and dangerous times for any authoritarian regime is actually when it tries to manage reform. But the point is, none of this is political reform. It's political reform that is the hardest thing. Just ask the generals in Myanmar. Now, rather, this is all about economic reform. In some ways, this is about going back to the original Putinist model which was not to try and legitimise itself on the basis of foreign adventures or the supposed threat from foreign agents and so forth, but rather just simply to say, look, politics doesn't really matter so long as we are treating you right and so long as your quality of life is improving. If they can crack that, or even just simply they can seem to be doing so, they will probably take a lot of the pressure out of the system. Remember, again, going back to my earlier point that I made in a, in a previous podcast about the, the danger that Navalny poses is precisely that he mobilises the coalition of the fed up. Well, if they can make fewer people fed up, that doesn't mean to say that they take Navalny out of the equation. There will still be people who are absolutely motivated by issues of democracy, of justice and of fighting corruption. But the point is, they have a much, much smaller constituency. 
to which to turn. So it, it may save the, the regime, it may not. But the most important thing is, this will all be good for Russia. And there would be a, a particularly perverse irony, and let's face it, Russian history is full of perverse ironies, but a particular perverse irony if Navalny's biggest legacy is actually to make Putin's Russia more efficient, more responsive, and thus probably more popular. I really don't think this is his goal or his ideal. And I'm not saying necessarily this is what I would regard as the ideal outcome. But nonetheless, it's worth noting that if that did happen, well, as a second best, it's not too bad. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. Well, you know I said that the second part wasn't going to be about Navalny. Well, maybe I was stretching the point a little. It kind of is, but it's something different. What I want to do is talk about European Union foreign policy head Josip Borrell's recent trip to Moscow, in which clearly the issue of Navalny loomed very, very large, but it was about much more than that. And what's really striking and what I really want to consider is quite why did Moscow so much go out of its way to give Borrell, and thus by extension the European Union, a damn good kicking. In fairness, Borrell did pretty much everything wrong, as far as I'm concerned at least. Firstly, there were many people who said he shouldn't really go, given what was happening to Navalny. Nonetheless, he continued to go. Now, in a way, fair enough. I think my advice would have been, yes, go. But at the same time, make a really strong pitch, not just of the few standard rhetorical flourishes, but a really strong demonstration that what's happened to Navalny matters. Instead, he did not go to see Navalny, even though Navalny was in court, and even though it's worth mentioning that other diplomats, including, I'm proud to say, a representative from the British Embassy, did go to observe at court. Why? Well, later on, his press spokesperson responded that to do so would have somehow um, demonstrated some kind of acceptance of the circumstance. Well, that's absolute rubbish. I mean, that's a little bit like saying, if I go and visit someone in hospital, I am somehow acknowledging and uh, approving of their illness. No, of course not. And anyway, even if he hadn't wanted to actually go and see Navalny, which I acknowledge would have really gone down badly with the Russians, he could have gone and seen other members of Team Navalny, or even had a meeting with members of you know, NGOs and civil society groups which had been observing the violent suppression of Navalny, pro-Navalny protests, or indeed just simply providing legal assistance to those people who were arrested, usually on the most spurious of grounds. Nope, he didn't do any of that. Not only that, he actually went out of his way to say that the European Union had no current plans for sanctions. Now, apart from the fact that there are certainly member states of the European Union that are not just considering sanctions themselves, but agitating for that to happen um, on, on an EU level, 
But to actually say that, it's basically disarming himself, or to put it another way, showing his hand of cards right at the beginning. Then, having done that, he then let Foreign Minister Lavrov, who is a very, very seasoned diplomatic uh, master of of the art, um, and who knows as easily how to demonstrate sort of genial bonhomie as to rip into someone with with great enthusiasm. Well, you know, that's exactly what Lavrov did. Lavrov basically humiliated him. And I mean, it's even fascinating. He actually said, as far as we're concerned, the European Union is an unreliable partner. At the press conference at which this was happening, Borrell allowed himself to be suckered into answering a question from a Russian journalist from, from Sputnik, which is a state news agency, uh, on Cuba, in which actually he allowed himself to be put to the point where he basically was criticising US policy and saying that Washington should change it. And as all this was happening, the Russians expelled three European diplomats, a German, a Pole and a Swede, for attending the protests and claiming, and I'll come back to this in a moment, claiming that actually they were taking part in the protest, which is absolutely not true. I mean, put all this together, it was an obvious attempt, and uh, let me say, a deeply successful attempt to humiliate not just Borrell, not just the European Union's external action service, its foreign service. And I must admit, external action service is one of the most uh, misnomered titles I've come across for a long time. They really went out of their way. Well, why? I mean, why do this? Because let's face it, it's not as though... The European Union needed to be given this treatment, surely. The Russians could just simply have nodded, noted, pushed back when they needed to. And the very fact of Borrell visiting in the midst of all this Navalny crisis could have been considered a diplomatic win. They didn't do that. Now, look, the Russians, they play foreign policy hard. They don't take prisoners, metaphorically, I should add. And so there has to be a reason Now, for some, it's just simply, oh, well, bullies pick on the meek and the weak. And there is, okay, there is some truth in that. But Moscow does not bully for its own sake. Moscow bullies often because it basically has found that can be a useful tactic. So what were they after? Well, first of all, I think they were asserting a very kind of heavy-handed unwillingness to accept what they regard as interference in their domestic affairs. Again, let me just stress this point that although for most people I think this is just a propaganda talking point, for certain people in the very heart of the Kremlin I think they genuinely regard Navalny as a Western project or at least a Western-backed individual. And so, you know, as far as they're concerned, this is an attempt to destabilise the regime by the West through Navalny. So they really want to do that. Now, obviously, ideally, they want to project this to the United States. But at the same time, they really don't necessarily want to provoke the new Biden administration. Not at this stage. Remember, we have a new administration coming in that has already made it very, very clear, quite explicitly, that it has its eye on, on Russia. President Biden has already asked his director of national intelligence to look into a series of alleged and in most cases likely real Russian intelligence operations, 
if people are wondering, the one I don't think is actually real is this notion that the Russians encouraged and paid Taliban to put bounties on the lives of American soldiers. But you know, the rest, the rest, I think, is true. So, you know, the Biden administration is signaling that it really, you know, is looking to push back against what they regard as, as Russian malign intervention. You also have a new American foreign policy elite, which is basically the Obama policy elite 2.0, which means that on the one hand, look, they are professionals, they are experienced, and they know Russia quite well. But on the other hand, they also have, can I call it an axe to grind? Yes, I would call it an axe to grind about, as they see it, their administration losing to Trump because of the Russians. Again, there's a whole debate as to how far that's true. I think the Russian impact was pretty negligible. But still, they're angry and therefore they're, although they're not going to let it absolutely shape policy, nonetheless, given an excuse, I don't think they would mind taking the Kremlin down a peg or two. And the Kremlin understands this. America is at the moment someone that they need to test they can't afford to look weak, but at the same time, there is room for common ground, uh, very, very pragmatic work together on things like strategic arms control. So by picking a fight with the European Union, in some ways that becomes a proxy opportunity to demonstrate what is a Russian red line, as they see it, and how far they are willing to push back against it. Mm. You don't push back against red lines. Push back against attempts to, to cross that red line. The second point is more specific to the European Union, and it's something I've, again, already been, been talking a bit about, is this, in many ways, I don't think the Russians believe the European Union exists. Now, look, it's not that they have some massive blind spot and they haven't noticed that blue flag with all the nice yellow stars, or that there is this thing in Brussels, or indeed that there is actually a European Union ambassador in Moscow. Now, of course, they know that it exists as a thing. What they don't necessarily believe, though, is that it actually has real power. Sure, it is a strong economic unit. Sure, the European Union has considerable, particularly regulatory power and some soft power. But these are not necessarily the kinds of power that the Kremlin really cares about. And more to the point, they think that in a way what the European Union does is not because of the European Union as an institution in its own right, but rather that it just simply reflects the balance of power amongst member states, and particularly that strong member states, which often means Germany, but at other times mean France and others, get to use the European Union to do what they want. So really, as far as they're concerned, power is still with the member states. There was uh, an old um, phrase of Winston Churchill's when he was discussing Kremlin politics, and particularly the opacity of it, the fact that you, know, you never really knew what, quite what was happening. And his view was basically that this was about, it was bulldogs fighting beneath a carpet. And you know that they're fighting, but you don't really know who's winning or what until you start to see the bones kind of popping out from under the carpet. Well, in some ways for the Russians, the European Union is the carpet. Member states are busy struggling beneath it, but all you actually get to see is the carpet. So as far as they're concerned, Borrell... The, the, the external action service, the, the whole union structure in, in, in Brussels is pretty much irrelevant. What really matters is turning to the, the member state governments. And I'm not saying that they're entirely incorrect in that. So this is why, again, Borrell became a relatively easy target in their minds. And there's a final point I would make. I think it also reflects the fact that they're rattled. 
they felt the need to demonstrate this kind of devil-may-care arrogance, really, in, in their response to the European Union. Because that's a classic way in which the Russians respond when they're worried. Look, whenever their first challenge, they always, their spinal reflex is always to push back at first. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to continue to push back. In fact, quite the opposite. Usually, that's exactly when you need to maintain sustained pressure, at which point, well, I'm not saying they will always fold or anything like that. But nonetheless, that's when you're going to get some, some degree of movement. Not at that first moment. The first moment, they will always see if they can brazen it out and, and push back. And so if we look at, the, for example, these expelled diplomats, look, they were doing what is their job. The job of diplomats is to gather information as much as it is to actually represent your country's policies to the other, to the other government. And therefore, to be out there on the streets collecting information, getting a sense of the protests, is precisely what they should do. And precisely what diplomats have been doing in the past and will no doubt be continuing to do in, in the future. Moscow decided to characterise what they were doing as taking part in protests, which admittedly, that is going over a, a certain sort of acceptable line. But as I said, it's not true. Does that mean that therefore they shouldn't have been there? Because to some, that's exactly the, the message. It, it, it was provocative. It allows the Russians to prevent, present the protest movement as exactly some kind of tool of the West. Well, not really. First of all, Russia's toxic propagandists will sp spread their lies regardless of whether there are any facts. But also, we can't let the Russians determine the parameters of Western behaviour. And this is not some kind of just macho, don't let the Russians tell us what to do, pushing back just, just for the sake of it. It is absolutely important to maintain a presence, to maintain contacts, to maintain the freedom of manoeuvre. Because if, if our diplomats cannot do what diplomats are meant to be doing, then what is the point of having them there? And actually, by continuing to demonstrate that we're not willing to let the Russians determine the parameters of diplomatic activity in, in Russia, this is precisely how we push back against that first initial Russian attempt to intimidate the West. And this is a really delicate balance. It's about showing strength, but without getting into sort of macho theatricals. This is not an arm wrestling contest. The, the journalist Leonid Ragozin uh, tweeted, and I think he, he put it really well. He said, ideally, when one is talking to someone like Putin or Lavrov, they should project an air of a doctor in a psychiatric ward talking to a patient. Calm, firm, patient, a little ironic, perhaps. And that's spot on. Again, look, I'm not going to try and make say, and I'm sure Leonid wasn't saying that Putin or Lavrov are patients in a psychiatric ward. No, but that sense of finding that way of demonstrating mature assertion, simply saying, look, these are our interests, this is what we believe, this is what we plan to do, without getting all macho on it, but also without being at all apologetic. This was one of the problems with the Borrell visit. Regardless of Borrell's personal demeanour, he had already signalled such a weak position that, of course, the Russians were going to take full advantage of it. Now, I think, frankly, Borrell should be considered damaged goods now. But on the other hand, this is exactly something the European Union could address in the future. There is absolutely no reason 
for them not to be able to demonstrate more assertiveness. I mean, quite frankly, if I think of the often really quite tough negotiation that took place during the Brexit talks, I really didn't see the same kind of, can I use this word? Yeah, I think I would use this word, pathetic and and defeatist mannerisms taking place. If so, I'm sure number 10 would have been thoroughly delighted. Why on earth does Putin get a break here? He shouldn't. And therefore, I think the message, the moral of this particular encounter is, again, not we should be tough with the Russians just because we want to be tough with the Russians. It's to understand that the Russians expect every country, every bloc, to assert and protect and defend and extend their interests to the fullest degree that they can. They do not appreciate it, they do not understand it, and they will not give credit for it when people don't. The Russians don't mind when it comes to diplomacy, and again, this is not me saying all force is the only thing they understand, but they don't mind when you push back. They expect you to push back. They will huff and they will puff and they will say how angry they are. And probably they will also tomorrow come back with some kind of a a deal, some kind of a compromise, if they think that you will not easily back down. Navalny may not be that important to us in the West. That's the sad truth of the matter. I would like to think otherwise, but given that we're certainly not seeing any great rush at the moment for any kind of serious measures to, to support him, and I would love to be proven wrong. But Navalny may not be that interesting, that important, that significant, that we're willing to pick a fight with the Russians. Sure. However, each time we fail to stand up for our values, Each time we fail to stand up for what we say is important, then we tell the Russians, ignore us. We are just hypocrites. We say certain things, but we don't believe them, and we certainly aren't going to act on them. That's a very dangerous position for us to be in. So actually, by supporting Navalny, it's one way in which we actually can provide an opportunity to say we are serious. Take us seriously when we say what, what is important to us. And we can work from that basis. The Russians are not bullies for their own sake. The Russians are not morons. The Russians are deeply pragmatic in their foreign policy. And they expect us to be. And when we are not, they mistrust it or they will take advantage of it. Anyway, that looks as if I've really climbed as far as I can onto this soapbox. So I think it's time to end. As ever, thank you very much for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash In Moscow Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.